on October the 2nd, 2006, Charles Carl Roberts, a 32-year-old milk truck driver, stormed a one-room Amish schoolhouse in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, in the United States. Armed with three guns, he sent the boys and the adults outside, and then having barricaded the doors, opened fire on a dozen young girls, killing three of them before turning the gun on himself. Two more girls died soon afterwards, and another five were seriously injured. I'm sure you remember it being on the news. The people of America, along with the rest of the world, were horrified and shocked that such a terrible thing should have happened. Especially in a community known for its simple lifestyle, its pacifism, and its limited use of modern conveniences, such as cars and electricity. But what seemed even more shocking was the response of the Amish community to the tragedy. Summarised by one person, actually a Catholic sister, who said the following, What really stunned the country was that the Amish refused to hate what had hurt them. It was a Christianity we all profess, but which they practised that left us stunned. No, it was not the murders, not the violence that shocked us. It was the forgiveness that followed it, for which we were not prepared. The lack of recrimination, the dearth of vindictiveness, that left us amazed, baffled, confused. And when asked reasons, as numerous reporters did, it's difficult to get access to folks like the Amish folk, why did you respond in this way? The first thing they did was, one of the first things was to go to the widow and children of the man who had committed the murders and ask if they could pray with the family and for the family. Then they've set up a fund for the families who suffered and for this family as well to help them financially. The leaders of the community simply said, we are not saints, no, we are simply following the teaching of Jesus. Now, it's that teaching that we're focusing on this evening. As we continue our series in Luke's Gospel, we've called it Good News of Great Joy for All People. I've entitled this section, with uh, thanks from James, uh, we were searching for a good title, A Love That's Out of This World. So, all we're going to do as we come to the Lord's Table is look at these verses briefly together uh, so if you've got a Bible, uh, will you turn to Luke 6? It will help to have one in front of you. There are Bibles in the pews. We're going to read verses 27 through to 38. Page 1034. So let's read what Jesus said. This is what is called the Sermon on the Plain because we looked at the beginning of it last time, Jesus preaching on a level place. Many people think this is different to the Sermon on the Mount, which is recorded in Matthew's Gospel. 
where there are many parallels. Verse 27, these are the words of Jesus, the Son of God. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who will treat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone asks, takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back, then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Well, these are the very challenging words of Jesus. Jesus, if you were here last week and you know what comes before this, Jesus has just told his followers to be prepared for opposition and persecution and to rejoice because of it. Just look back at verse 22. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. And in contrast he says, beware if that doesn't happen. Beware of the perils of popularity. Verse 26. Woe to you when all men speak well of you for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. What is he saying? He's saying, if you are a follower of me Expect persecution, expect opposition, expect hostility. Now he tells them, how do you react when it happens? What should you do? How to respond, as it were, when you come under enemy fire? And I find it quite difficult to think how to preach about this because I often think when we look at the words of our Lord, they're so Wonderfully expressed, how can you kind of analyze them? But let me, let me try, and it's a bit like trying to pull a butterfly apart to explain how beautiful it is. Well, destroys the effect, but let me, let me simply highlight three themes and three words that may help us to just focus on what Jesus is saying in a fresh way with the help of the Holy Spirit. First of all, the word, notice the word commands. Verses 27 to 31. What Jesus says here are not good suggestions. They're not even recommendations. No, for those who hear him, he says, for you who listen and take on board what I'm saying, these are commands, these are imperatives to be obeyed for would-be disciples now and then. 
And the focus of these commands is who you should love. Now, if you'd asked any good Jew in those days, probably anyway, who are you commanded to love? A good Jew could quote you the scriptures in the law of Moses. You are to love your neighbour. Leviticus 19 verse 18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what God said to his people. Now, it was assumed from this, and commonly taught, that anyone outside the scope of neighbour, that is anyone who was not one of your people, you see the verse, was outside the scope of your love. Especially those who are hostile to God's people. In the time of our Lord, the occupying Romans. Therefore, people inferred, well the parallel to love your enemy, love your neighbour, is hate your enemy. But Jesus comes out with this shocking statement. Most of us are familiar with it and it's sort of passé. But I think when Jesus said it, people just would have taken a sharp gasp when he said, no, who are you to love? You are to love your enemy. And of course, the kind of love he's speaking about, the word that's used for love here, the Greek word, is a word that's not the normal word for loving. It's a word that's usually used of God's love for our world and his love in us for the world. But supremely, it's a word that expresses love in action. It is not just what you feel, it is what you do. Love in action. So Jesus says, here's love in action. Do good to those who hate you, rather than doing something bad to them. Bless those who curse you. That is, ask God to show his favour to them, rather than asking God to harm them and punish them. Pray for those who will treat you, asking God to help and forgive them. And should those who hear think, well, this is all theory, he then gives three practical examples in verses 29 to 30 of love in action. The first is, he says, no personal retaliation. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other. Now, people aren't sure exactly what this means, but it's probably to do with insulting someone by slapping them across the face. A personal challenge in which the follower of Jesus is not to respond, but rather to accept and willingly accept further violence and insults. Uh, The second one turns from your reputation to your possessions, in which loving your enemy means no personal rights. Someone takes your cloak, don't stop him, from taking your tunic. Now, if you look at this parallel saying in the Sermon on the Mount, it's placed in a strictly legal context. Again, in the law of Moses, if you were sued for your possessions, the law strictly said the one thing you couldn't take from someone was their cloak because they would freeze to death at night. That did like a kind of blanket. You had nothing else. But Jesus goes beyond that. Here it sounds like a case of robbery. He said, don't even claim your rights to hang on to your cloak. In fact, if necessary, give him your undergarment as well. And the final example of living your enemy means no personal return of property that has been given or taken. Give to everyone who asks you. If anyone takes what belongs to you, don't demand it back. Now, it's very important to see that these are not legalistic rules. 
to be applied literally in every situation. If they were, as many people have pointed out, and applied rigorously, then the church would be full of nude paupers. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, when on trial for his life, you may remember the account in John's Gospel, chapter 18, verse 22 and 23, he's struck across the face by an official. He doesn't immediately turn the other cheek. He says to the official, why did you do that? No, rather than being strict rules, these are personal examples of specific situations. In fact, in the original, the word you changes from the plural, love your enemies, to the singular. Jesus is not speaking of the processes of law. Rather, he's speaking to his followers about their personal response to things like their reputation, their possessions, their attitude to giving. And as such, they don't lose the challenge, therefore, as we apply them to personal situations uh, that we may encounter. Let me give you an example close to home, and I'm going to do it anonymously because I don't want to embarrass the person who I'm going to tell you about, but some of you will know who it is, so don't tell him I said this if he's not here this evening. I don't think he is. Uh, but as you know, we're involved in uh, the work at Nidri, working with the church. That could see John up, up in the back there and Lucille and the family. Uh, and it's a tough situation working with the kids there. One of our guys who's working out there, a couple of months ago, uh, the kids weren't very happy with it, weren't behaving, and so we put them outside and trying to play football with them. And the kids decided to take it out on one of the leaders, young guy, so they smashed the windows of his car. When he went out to remonstrate with them, they then drove the car off, wrote it off completely. He then got a replacement car, with the insurance company and they found where the car was and smashed the windows again so he got the windows repaired and last Friday guess what they found the car and smashed the windows again now what should he do in this situation he doesn't mean as he's done is to report it to the police but what he means is you don't take out personal retribution on the kids you don't so this is my car. I'm going to stop going to Nidra and people do those kind of things. No, you persist with it because this is following, I think, anyway, the example of Christ. And, and just to me, that seems a practical example of the kind of things Jesus is saying here. In his commentary on Luke's Gospel, which is probably the fullest and best commentary, Daryl Bock, American writer, says, Love is available, vulnerable, subject to repeated abuse. So this is the command, this is the kind of outworking of it. Love your enemies. And Jesus summarizes it with what has been commonly called the golden rule. Do to others as you would have them do to you. It's been pointed out, of course, that such teaching is not unique to Jesus. It's been said by other teachers and philosophers, but with one marked difference. What is original to Jesus is that Jesus states it positively, not just negatively. Famous Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Hillel, said, What is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbour. That is the Torah, that's the first five books of the Bible, the law of God, while the rest is commentary. Confucius actually said, What you do not want to be done to yourself, do not do to others. But Jesus, rather than putting it negatively, does it positively. He says, do it. 
Be proactive in how you respond to your enemies. It's a love that is out of this world. Now begin with, with an awful story. What could be worse than your own daughter or son being killed, a child? But I think some of us have much greater difficulty with the smaller affronts and things that happen to us that we struggle with that people do to us. It's no easy matter to love your enemies, to those who treat you badly, who have treated you badly. And I've no doubt as we sit here in this congregation, some of us, our minds immediately go to people who fit into that category of enemies. And the teaching of Jesus is radical, but I remind you firstly, this is a command expressed by other commands in which love is seen in action, is it seen in us? Well, if it isn't, Jesus goes on to say, you're no different from anyone else in the world. You're not distinctive at all. So notice the second word, contrast. Verses 32 to 36. Jesus goes on to contrast the radical response of his followers, love your enemies, with the natural response of the world, to love only your neighbour. Again, he describes three situations. And each time he asks a question, you see what the question is? He says, what credit is it to you? The word translated credit there, this Greek word, is the word charis, from which we get charismatic. It means grace, favour. And the, the, the inference here is, he's saying to his followers, what favourable response do you expect to get from God if you love those who love you? If you do good to those who do good to you? If you lend to those from whom you expect to return and repayment. Now the answer obviously is none. Because that's the way the world is. That's natural behaviour. Jesus says even sinners categorised as bad people who live lives that aren't pleasing to God. Even they do that. They do good to those who do good to them. They lend to people, expect repayment back. It's a common behaviour. If you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. All societies work on that basis. It's just normal sinful behaviour. In contrast, Jesus says, the love that you should show is unnatural behaviour. It's a love that's out of this world. But love your enemies again, he says. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. That kind of behaviour merits God's favour. Then your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Verse 35. That kind of love is showing kindness to the undeserving. Because this kind of love is a love that's out of this world. It comes from God and is shown, he says, by God because God's love is expressed that way. God is kind to those who don't even thank him, the ungrateful. He's kind to those who don't even deserve his kindness. To the wicked. We've already sung about it and focused on it. But those who are true followers of Jesus, who have experienced the Father's love, will demonstrate it by showing the same kind of love to their enemies. They will show, as it were, the family likeness. So, when you love like this, people say, that person, that person is different. They belong to a different family that doesn't operate by the normal rules of society. Daryl Buck again comments, Reward is not merit for salvation, but recognition of being a faithful son or daughter. Thus the disciples who love their enemies visibly demonstrate their pedigree to the Father. 
they have imitated God and shown themselves faithful to their father. So, I ask myself as I read this and think about it, do I show that same kind of love? A love that's out of this world to my enemies? Or do we think, why should I be kind to that person? They don't appreciate it. And they certainly don't deserve it. Or do we say, yes, they don't appreciate it, they don't deserve it, but I didn't appreciate or deserve God's kindness to me. His far greater kindness to me. And so what I'm going to do with God's help, with His love in me, is to love them, do good to them, bless them, pray for them, whatever they do and whatever they keep on doing to me. And so think about this contrast and ask yourself this. Is your love my love, natural love, the love that everybody normally shows in society? For those who love me, Or is it an unnatural, supernatural love? A love that's out of this world for those who hate me, who curse me, who hit me and rub me. Buck again writes, simply put, the disciples' love for others should be extraordinary in comparison to the way people use their love. It is a love appropriate for a disciple who has first experienced God's forgiveness. And only when you've experienced God's forgiveness can you forgive others. So these are the contrasts. Thirdly and finally... Commands, contrast. Notice finally, in the last two verses we read, verses 37 38, consequences. Now the focus shifts from actions towards the enemy to include our attitude behind them. And the consequences of these attitudes. Jesus gives, as it were, four areas of cause and effect. If you look, the first two are negatives, second two are positives. First of all, in the area of judgment. He says, do not judge and you will not be judged. These verses are very misunderstood, of course. People say, well, if you do that, then you can't be a member of the legal profession because you're involved in judging. It's not talking about legal cases. Or even making ethical judgments about something or someone. Rather, the focus, again, is personal. What Jesus forbids is having a judgmental attitude towards someone when we don't know the true facts about them and what they've done. I think our media just thrives on this kind of thing, doesn't it? Something bad happens and we, we demonise the person. We read it in the headlines and all of us feel a little bit better because we think, yeah, I'm bad, but I'm nowhere near as bad as that person. At the grave of one of those little girls, the grandfather of one of them was overheard saying to the other children, do not think evil of this man as they looked at the body of the child being laid in the grave. Now, I don't think it was that he didn't believe in evil or that people can be evil but rather that such judgments are not the province of human beings they're the province of God alone. And this is implied by the words of Jesus. You can kind of paraphrase them in parallel. If you do not judge others then God won't judge you. But if you judge others then God will judge you in the same way you've judged them. Again, the Sermon on the Mount saying makes it clearer. Do not judge or you you too will be judged. For in the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7, 1-2. And then he goes on beyond judging to passing sentence. Condemnation. Do not condemn. You'll not be condemned. You can summarise it again. If you do not condemn others, then God won't condemn you. But the opposite is true. Here's the consequences. If you condemn others, God will condemn you. 
And then the focus moves from the negative to the positive on the theme of forgiveness. He says, forgive and you'll be forgiven. If you forgive others, then God will forgive you. If you won't forgive them and don't forgive them, then God won't forgive you. Now again, this is stated explicitly in the Lord's Prayer. When we pray, forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors, Jesus actually comments on that in Matthew's Gospel at the end of what we call the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. We are to forgive because we've been forgiven. God has forgiven us so much more than we'll ever have to forgive anyone else. And you, you know the story of the two debtors that Jesus told about the man who owned 10 million pounds and he fell at the feet of his master and his master completely forgave him. Then he went out and seized someone by the throat who owed him a tenner and threw him into jail. And the master was angry with him and said, you're thrown into jail until you can pay off the debt again. The man who had been forgiven. And he said, this is how my father will treat you unless you forgive one another from the heart. Now again, when we come to this table as Christians, those of us who know and love the Lord, if you come to this table and say, I've been forgiven by God and I come to express my appreciation for that, if you harbour unforgiveness in your heart to any other Christian, then I suggest you don't take the bread and wine, but you sort that out first. Jesus said, bring your gift. If you bring your gift to the altar, you've got something against your brother, go and see him first and sort it out. Sometimes some of us need to take this a lot more literally and seriously. Can I say this? Sometimes the reason why we don't experience and feel God's forgiveness is because we harbour unforgiveness in our hearts because it makes us bitter. And I know you're going to say, because people say to me, I'm a pastor, they say, but pastor, you don't know what my family member did to me. You don't know how badly I've been hurt. And I say, no, I don't. I really, I'll try and understand. But I do know this, it's nothing in comparison with the hurt that you caused God so much that his son had to die for your sin. And in comparison, it is very little. You need to forgive so that you are forgiven. And finally he talks about generosity. Give and it will be given to you. If you're to give to others, God will give to you. And Jesus says he'll give most generously. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Um, in those days, and some of us have lived in these parts of the world, it still happens today. When you go to the market, let's say you're going to get some grain or something, they measure it out, usually in a tin, or, or something like that, and what they'll tend to do is fill the tin up, and nearly to the top, then they shake it, and then push it down into the corners, and it goes down quite a bit, actually, because there's air and pockets. And you push it down, and then they pour more on the top and shake it again. And finally, if you've got a good person, they pile it right up in a sort of cone in the top. And as they hand it over to you, he says it overflows and spills into your lap. Now, in those days, people wore long cloaks. And what you did, your pocket was a fold in your cloak. So the idea is when it falls into your lap is you hold your cloak out and it, the, the excess pours into your lap and then you, you, you keep it safe. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? It's the kind of generosity that God shows to those who give. Those who give their money, their resources, their time, their energy, even to those who are ungrateful and undeserving. Now, of course, this has again been abused by so-called prosperity teachers who treated some kind of financial divine plan. You know, give your money, usually to me, and you'll get loads back afterwards. 
This is not some kind of investment plan in the divine bank. It's an indication of God's provision for us that meets our needs and more so that they could overflow in giving to others. So what's the opposite? Well, if you don't give, God won't give to you. Either nothing or give very sparingly instead of generously. Maybe sometimes the reason God hasn't given us more is because we're pretty stingy with what we've already got. Now, all of us live with these consequences for the effects of sin in being worked out in our lives, in our attitude to others, especially our enemies. And so I simply ask you, are we judgmental, condemning, unforgiving, tight-fisted? Or are we slow to judge and condemn, ready to forgive, and generous towards others, even the ungrateful and the wicked? Let me just say some in conclusion before we come to the Lord's table. Remember this. The one who taught these things put them into practice. There's nothing worse than a teacher who tells you what to do and then walks away and doesn't put it into practice. As he was crucified, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the Christian is called to follow the example of Jesus. Apostle Peter writes in his first letter, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, that you should follow in his steps. And then he quotes, He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. As we come to this table, we're following his example. If you access the Charlotte Chapel website, if you've got a computer, you will see our logo. And in the corner are three words in large print. It's on all our publicity. Conspicuous for Christ. And in the middle of the page you'll read our vision statement, which is to impact our world as a distinctive community of believers transformed by the power and message of Christ. It's great to have a good website where all these things are written. But it's useless unless it's written in the lives of the members of Charlotte Chapel as we go out into the world. If we're just like the rest of the world, then we're living a lie and we may as well get rid of the statement. And one of the greatest evidences that we are conspicuous for Christ is how we react to people who fall into the category of enemies with a love that's out of this world. That's what our hurting, angry, vengeful world and society needs to see in reality and in practice. That's the challenge, the words of Jesus for us this evening. Love your enemies. Let's pray together.